Would you pray with me? Father God, as we open your word, Lord, we believe that you are going to speak. And so now I do ask, God, that you would use your humble, fragile, and weak servant to bring your word so that many might see your glory in Christ. Lord, we love you and ask that you would meet us today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right. It is exciting to be with you today. Again, this is my first time preaching for you guys, and I am super stoked. Again, I love, I've loved being here over the last few months, and it is just exciting uh, to be around and get to know you and just to be able to bring the word today is just a joy. If you don't know, uh, I'm married to my wife, Jessica. I'm sitting right over there, and we are coming up on our third wedding anniversary coming up in here in June, which is really exciting. And as we look back over our, our few years of marriage that we've had, I'm grateful for the moments when God has used Jessica uh, and her unique life experiences to challenge my way of thinking. Well, not always grateful in the moment. Uh, I can now see how God has used these moments uh, of dissonance in, in our marriage to sharpen me uh, and to make me a, a better man, a better husband, and now a better father. Uh, one instance in particular where Jessica's life experience challenged my way of thinking uh, was when we first experienced our first tornado warning together. Now, I grew up in Michigan, so I had heard the tornado sirens, you know, go off time and time again, at least a couple times a year, but never experienced the destruction that a tornado can have uh, on a community. So over time, I had become, let's say, apathetic to these warnings. On the other hand, Jessica personally experienced a tornado firsthand while she was at Covenant College. She was studying for her finals, going into her senior year, and a tornado ripped through the mountainside and destroyed many homes. They had to evacuate the campus, and many lives were lost. So when we heard this familiar wail of a siren, you know, when we were first together in our little tiny apartment, we had very different reactions. Um, I said, hey, I'm just going to keep watching TV, and I think we'll be fine. Don't worry about it. Jessica had the flashlight ready. She had, you know, food stored up. Like, hey, we're going to the, the bathroom, and we're going to sit on the floor, and we're going to wait this storm out. So, you see, my, my theoretical knowledge of tornadoes and the destruction that it could have um, made me kind of lazy and potentially put myself and my family in, in harm's way. My familiarity with the warnings produced a laziness and an apathy that I did not prepare for the storm as I ought. And I fear that many of us, maybe here today, have the same type of attitude when we hear the warnings from Scripture about our adversary, the devil. I wonder if many here in the church have become so accustomed to talk about Satan that we fail to adequately prepare ourselves for his attack. Or maybe you're on the other side of the spectrum. Maybe you're so aware of Satan and the way that he can slip in that you become maybe one of those doomsday preppers that just always lives in fear and sees the devil behind every door, behind every natural disaster, behind every new political administration. C.S. Lewis points out these pitfalls in his book, The Screwtape Letters, and he says this, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve their existence, and the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. Again, Satan is happy for you to either not think about him at all or to be obsessed by him. Both errors allow him to creep into our hearts and tempt us away from God. So then if we want to avoid these errors and remain firm in our faith against the storms of Satan, we must have a biblical battle plan to prepare for his attacks. 
So look in our text this morning, if you could, if you have your Bibles, we will see that the Apostle Peter gives his readers a threefold battle plan that will help us prepare to fight our enemy who is seeking to destroy our faith. If we are going to remain firm in our faith throughout the time of our exile, we must first stand guard, two, we must know our adversary, and three, we must resist to the end. First, if we are going to keep our faith throughout the time of our exile, we must first stand guard. Look at verse 8 with me. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Again, our text begins with Peter giving two clear imperatives that kind of go hand in hand as we prepare to face our enemy. The first is to be sober-minded, and the second is to be watchful. And if you've been with us in our study in 1 Peter, you've maybe heard this be sober-minded command before. This is now the third time that he's called his readers to arm themselves with clear, alert, sober thinking in the face of persecution and opposition. We see it in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, which says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter here calls us to prepare for suffering with right thinking by anchoring our minds in the steadfast hope of Christ. And again, he uses it in chapter 4, verse 7. It says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Now, if you look at our passage, Peter commands us to be sober-minded and watchful because we have an enemy on the prowl seeking to destroy our faith. Peter warns us that if we are not spiritually on guard with clear, sober thinking and watchful hearts, we open ourselves up to all types of spiritual attack. And I got to believe this is a, a personal warning from Peter. Because if you remember the night Jesus was betrayed, Jesus asked Simon, Peter, James, and John to keep watch while he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. And in Mark 14, 37, we read the account and he says this, And he, being Jesus, came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch with me for one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed. And again, they found him sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know how to answer him. And he came to him a third time and said, are you still sleeping? And we know later that night, Peter would indeed fall into temptation, denying Christ three times. Peter knows it's easy to fall spiritually asleep when there doesn't seem to be an imminent threat or danger around us. John Calvin uh, is quoted saying is that we can often turn peace into sloth, meaning we can get comfortable in our exile and the devil can sneak into our camp because we forget we're actually in a war. Therefore, Peter exhorts us to have a sober-mindedness, to be watchful guards, being vigilant to make sure the devil doesn't sneak into the camp. When I was uh, in first grade, my, my dad took uh, my family, uh, my mom, my sister, over to England because uh, he had a big business trip over there. And instead of just going by himself for three months, he took the whole family over. And I still remember a lot of it. Uh, I remember it being really dreary all the time. Uh, I remember riding the double-decker buses. I remember touring the old castles. And of course, I remember trying to distract the Buckingham Palace guards that stood in front. 
And when you think of like really good guards, you know, guys that, that can be responsible, you think of these guys, right? You know, they've got all the, all the crowds around them kind of waving at them, you know, trying to, try to get them to, to blink or to, to move. Yet they stand guard, they're watchful, they're, they're, they're sober-minded, and they're able to guard the queen as they ought to. Again, you'd think it'd be, it'd be difficult to do this, but, but they're able to see, again, what is a true threat and, and what is not. They're able to carefully watch. And this is the type of guard we should be as we guard and defend God's royal family. We don't want to be caught sleeping when real spiritual danger is approaching. On the other hand, we don't want to sound the alarm every time a tourist approaches the gates. And I want you to hear me when I say this uh, to you, church. Satan does not want College Park Castleton to complete the mission God has called us to. Again, Satan will try to lure us into spiritual sleepiness. Uh, again, maybe it means that when we, when we go over to Castle, the, the actual campus, we'll, the Lord will bring many into our midst uh, to the point where we're like, well, I guess, I guess the work is done and, and we forget that we still need to evangelize. Or maybe when we start adding more staff and more programs, Satan whispers, whispers to you and convinces you that you're just not needed anymore. All the while, you're sitting next to somebody who is in desperate need of discipleship and encouragement. Or maybe when we head over there, ministry is going to be really difficult. Maybe we're the same number or we, we lose people. And Satan highlights our differences among us that we forget that we have a common bond in Christ and that our mission is to proclaim his name. Satan will do everything he can to cause division amongst our congregation. Again, a, a great way to get past the guards in the campus to kind of preoccupy themselves with each other so that they are lulled to sleep and we miss the enemy that slipped through the gates. So church, I would exhort us to stand guard, ready to defend one another against the devil's schemes. Second part uh, of Peter's battle plan here is that we must know our adversary. If we are going to keep our faith throughout the time of our exile, we must know our enemy. Again, it's hard to be on the lookout for the enemy if you don't know what he looks like or how he plans to attack. Look at verse 8 again. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Look at this passage in the whole of Scripture. Uh, what can we know about our adversary, the devil? Well, first, we can know that the devil is our chief adversary. And th throughout this letter, uh, we've seen Peter addressed in many different ways, and as Christians in their exile, their own homes, can experience suffering. But here at the end of this letter, he reminds them that their enemy in the exile is not ultimately an oppressive emperor or a disobedient spouse or the crowd that may malign them for their righteous living, but instead the greatest enemy, their greatest enemy, is the one who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Our chief adversary is the devil. And as it is often read earlier today in our service, Ephesians chapter 6, this is what Paul says, he said, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And in the face of human opposition and persecution, it's easy for us to forget who we're really fighting and who the real battle is with. It's not with, with people, but against sin and the powers of darkness that are in work in the world. Uh, since being at College Park, Jessica and I have done uh, some, some marriage counseling uh, with different couples, and we always have to remind couples, it's like, hey, hey, you, you guys are not each other's enemies. 
This, you, guys, you guys are on the same team, you have this, but you have the same enemy. And this enemy is Satan and sin. And this enemy would like nothing rather than have you fight each other, thinking that you're, you're the enemy that's going to destroy your marriage instead of focusing your efforts on what really is causing dysfunction in your marriage. Again, we, we do not wage war against people caught in darkness, but against darkness itself. And this passage is clear that the devil is our chief adversary. Second, we must know that our chief adversary is powerful. And Peter describes this devil as a roaring lion, a prowling lion, a hungry lion. And when we think about lions, what do we think about? We think, you know, like the most fiercest, most mightiest beasts of all the animals, right? We think the king of the jungle, right? They're predators, I just, I can't help but think about, you know, those Discovery Channel documentaries where, you know, the scene opens up and you have this little gazelle grazing and everything is wonderful. And then, and then you start seeing the grass, right? There's just this lion that's prowling around and he's cornering. You see this, this little gazelle who's decided that this corner is going to be better than with, with the herd, right? And you're like, oh, that guy's toast. He's done. You just know it. You just know he's coming. That's what the devil is. He is a prowling lion. He's a predator. And he's very powerful. Again, our adversary here, he roars because he tries to instill fear in the people of God so that we might run away from our faith in the face of persecution. We see his roar and destructive power all throughout Scripture as he wages war against God and God's people. Just, just in the book of Job, like in like one or two chapters, this is, what, this is what Satan does. We see Satan incite groups of men to kill Job's servants and steal his possessions. We see Satan call down fire from heaven to burn up Job's flocks and herdsmen. We see Satan cause a great wind to kill Job's sons and daughters. We see Satan inflict Job with boils from the tip of his toes to the top of his head. In the New Testament, we see that Satan steals the gospel seed that is sown so they may not believe and be saved. We read about the demons that they inflict women and children with all sorts of types of diseases and afflictions. They cause men to lose their minds Satan ensnares new converts with pride, and he deceives Judas, who is an eyewitness to the majesty of Christ, to betray him for 30 pieces of silver. The great reformer, uh, Martin Luther, knew of the devil's power, and he writes in his, his famous song, A Mighty Fortress of Our God, that his craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate, on earth is not his equal. We ought never to take our great adversary lightly or underestimate his strength. And so, we must know that he's our chief adversary and that our enemy has great power. And third, we must know that our adversary seeks to destroy our faith. He will give you praise from men so you won't desire praise from God. He will give you treasures on earth so that you won't store up treasures in heaven. He will give you glory today so that you won't receive glory forever with Christ. Satan will use any means possible to place doubt in your heart so that when you're faced with suffering and persecution, you will deny the faith. And I would argue that Satan's most prominent weapon he uses against our faith are his darts of deception. Jesus, if you remember, Jesus calls him the father of lies. Because he lies about everything, right? He lies about God. He lies about us. All, all, all those lies and deceptions, hoping that you will take the bait and to fall into his trap. Uh, in in C.S. Lewis's uh, book, The Last Battle, I'm sure many of you have, have read it, 
he tells a story of a clever and scheming ape named Shift. Uh, and this conniving ape uses flattery and deception to trick a weak-minded donkey named Puzzle into doing his bidding. Uh, in one scene, Shift and Puzzle see a, a little a lion skin floating down the river. And Shift convinces Puzzle that, hey, you know, your donkey, you should go in and fetch that, even though he's got hands, he's an ape, you know, it's like, so, like man, he's, he's deceived us, but he's, he's got Puzzle in his, in his grasp. And once Puzzle retrieves the, the lion skin, he even then convinces and shames Puzzle into wearing it. You look wonderful, wonderful, said the ape. If anyone saw you now, they'd think you were Aslan, the great lion himself. Well, well, that, well that would be dreadful, said Puzzle. No, it wouldn't, said Shift. Everyone would do whatever you told them. But, but I don't want to tell them anything. But think of all the good we could do, said Shift. You'd have me to advise you, you know. I'd think of sensible orders for you to give. And everyone would obey us, even the king. We would set everything right in Narnia. And sure enough, under the cover of night, Shift trots out Puzzle, wearing the lion skin, and declares to all the creatures of Narnia that the great lion Aslan has returned and orders them to destroy the forest and allows the ruthless Kalermans to invade Narnia and to take them captive. Satan will not come to deceive us, dressed in a cape with horns and a pitchfork, but scripture tells us that he dresses as an angel of light and he sends his wolves into our midst with sheep's clothing. Satan will offer you the bait, but hide the hook. He will offer comfort but deliver confusion. He will offer you pleasure, but deliver poison. He will promise you peace, but deliver pain. He will whisper in your ear, did, did God really say that? You know, you, you deserve better. You know, you, you're better than they are. You know, once you have that, then you'll be happy. You know, just, just one look won't hurt anybody. If only they knew who you really were. You know, God's grace doesn't cover that sin. You know, if, if God is good, why is there so much evil in the world? Again, we don't have to look far either in our own lives or at the world around us to see how Satan has successfully deceived us. We live as though the temporary is eternal and eternity is foolishness. We justify ourselves by comparing uh, our good deeds to one another except instead of looking to Christ instead. We believe it's okay that no one knows that we're a Christian at work or in our neighborhood and that it's okay to live by the world's standard of morality. His goal is to make Christians look just like the world so the church, the church is just a building and, and the world cannot see Christ in us. And he usually, again, he doesn't attack the foundation of our faith with one big assault. And sometimes he does, but not often, but rather he is patient to deconstruct your faith one brick at a time. He will draw you away from Christ by deceiving you one degree, one inch at a time until you're so far away from God that when you consider the mirror of God's word, your life looks more like Satan's than it does Christ's. We must know our adversary and his attacks if we are going to keep our faith to the end. So our battle plan in this exile is we need to stand guard we need to know our enemy and his schemes. And third, and finally, we must resist. We must resist. If we are going to keep our faith 
throughout the time of our exile, we must resist him and fight to the end. Look at verse 9 with me. It says, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Again, it's, it's not enough just to be on the lookout for the devil or, or to know him and to know his schemes, but when temptations come, we actually need to fight. And this command to resist, again, should actually be an encouraging one to us because it infers that the Satan, though Satan has a lot of power and is powerful, he can be defeated. He can be resisted. The devil's power and his schemes are great, but his power is limited. He may be a prowling lion, but he is on a leash. He may be a roaring lion, but he is in a cage and cannot do anything that God does not allow him to do. He is a cheap imitation of the lion of Judah. He is not all-powerful. He is not omniscient. He is not omnipresent like our God is. And we know this uh, because when we read in Genesis 1 that God created all things, and all things that God creates are now under his authority. Again, God did not create the devil as he is now, but at the end of creation, he declares everything to, to be good. So then we can infer that somewhere between Genesis 1 and, and Genesis 3, where we find Satan tempting Adam and Eve in the garden, that he rebelled against God, and God cast him out of heaven along with all who were deceived with him. Because Satan is a created being, he is by nature under God's authority and can only do what God allows him to do. Again, this is, this is not a cosmic battle between equals. This is not the yin and the yang sort of thing. It's like, no, like there is, there is, we all know who is, he, Satan knows who is in authority over him. The devil is a roaring lion at the zoo behind a glass trying to convince us to come and play. Satan has great power, but his power is limited. Therefore, we do not need to retreat in fear when the enemy approaches, but we need to stand firm and fight. We must resist. So then how do we resist? How do we resist the devil? Well, first, we must resist with confidence because the scriptures tell us that when we resist, he will flee from us. If you have your Bibles, flip back uh, to James chapter 4, just a couple pages back. In James chapter 4, there's a lot of similarities uh, with our passage here. And he helps us unpack a little bit how we ought to resist uh, the devil. James chapter 4, and we're going to start in verse 6. It says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. We can resist our powerful enemy with confidence because we are promised that if we resist him, he will flee. Anytime we are faced with temptation, the scriptures say that God will always provide a way of escape. No matter how great the temptation it is, we are promised that through the power of the Spirit, we can resist Satan and we can win. And we see this victory over Satan all the time. When you're at work and you squash some gossip that's happening, boom, Satan is resisted. Every time you repent of sin, boom, Satan is resisted. Every time a new believer puts their faith in Christ, boom, we see Satan defeated. Every time we see a saint die with their eyes and hearts toward Christ, we witness Satan losing another saint to glory. We resist with confidence because the same spirit that hovered over the waters at creation that raised Jesus from the dead, now lives inside all who believe. 
giving us the power to resist the devil, and he will flee from us. James also helps us recognize that resisting the devil also means we need to draw near to God. And the primary way I would argue that we draw near to God is through his word. Therefore, we must resist him with the truth of God's word. Uh, throughout, throughout the scriptures, again, God's people have resisted Satan and his lies by clinging to the truth that God provides in his word. Again, the, the most effective way to extinguish the darts of deception from Satan is to cling to the truth that God supplies. Again, in describing, again, the armor of God in that famous passage in Ephesians 6, we got one weapon, and that one weapon is what? The sword of the Spirit, right? Which is the word of God. If you want any chance uh, to resist Satan and his lies and deception in your own life, we must know God's word. We must hide it in our hearts. Uh, and if you look, have your bulletins with you, on the back here, you see what's something called the fighter verse of the week. And this isn't just like a fun little verse that we, we put on the back here. The reason why they're called fighter verses is because we need a, this is our weapon. It's like when we have, we hide the God's truth in our, in our hearts, we... We can fight against the devil's schemes and rebut his attacks. That's what David says, right? I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. It will be impossible to trust God and remain firm in your faith if you are unable to recall God's truth in the midst of persecution and his lies. Truth that reminds us that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Or that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Or in Christ you are a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. Heaven and earth may pass away, but God's word will never pass away. Therefore, we must resist with the eternal word of God. So we resist the devil with confidence. We resist him with God's word. And third, we must resist the devil together. In our passage in verse 9, we read about this kind of togetherness. It says, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. The war against Satan is never meant to be fought alone. Peter reminds and encourages those suffering exiles that their battle against Satan is not an isolated battle. Their trials are not unique to them, but they are being shared by their brothers and sisters throughout the world. And you, you can just imagine the, the encouragement this might be um, to, to a, a couple or a, a group of people in, in the homes that feel like they're alone, and you hear this from, from Peter, that you are not alone in this battle. Again, and one of the great lies of Satan that he'll tell you is that you are alone in your resistance against sin. He tells you that no one else struggles with this sin like you do. He convinces you to conceal your sin and to try to overcome it on your own. Only to find out that the longer you fight alone, the more isolated, the more lonely, and the more weak you actually become against the sin. David describes this weakness and isolation in Psalm 32. He says this, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through all my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was just dried up as the heat of the summer. Our silence in the struggle makes us weak to resist the devil. Yet I bet if you, if you look back over your life and you look at the breakthroughs that you've had against sin, that these breakthroughs happened in community with others. 
Either you share your struggle with somebody else or somebody shares something from either the pulpit or, or next to you. It's like, oh, wow, yeah, I'm, I'm struggling with that, that same thing and encourages you to fight. Resisting sin and Satan is so much easier in community. That is why God has given us the church so that we can resist together. I remember when I was, uh, I was in high school and it was a friend's birthday party. I was like 14, 15 years old and we're going, going to the movies and there's probably 10, 12 of us there. And it didn't take us long, take me long to figure out like, oh, this is not a movie I should be, I should be watching. Um, but as the movie's going on and I'm kind of looking around and I see friends over here kind of laughing and they just don't seem disturbed at all by, by what we're watching. I just remember this, this wrestling that was going on in my heart. It's like, should I go? Should I not go? Like, what's going on? I kind of look around and then, then finally, uh, a buddy next to me goes, hey man, you, you want to go? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, let's go. And so like immediately I get up and we walk out and we look behind us and three or four other guys follow along. Yeah, I, I knew individually that what I was watching was not, was not good. Um, but where I was at my spiritual walk, I could not resist the temptation uh, alone. I needed someone to encourage me that I was not alone in the battle. His encouragement gave me the strength to get up quickly. Say, like, oh, I'm not alone in this battle. I can get out of here. And I wonder how many of us here today feel alone in the battle against sin. How many of us have, have secret sins hidden in our hearts because the devil has convinced us that you are alone in this battle? And again, I, I hope and pray that at College Park Castleton, we, we can be a church that resists together. That we not isolate ourselves in the battle against sin, but rather we would confess our sins to God and to one another, always being ready to restore one another who are caught in the snare with grace and truth. Again, the Lord has given us the church to remind us that our fight of faith is a community effort. We need each other to win the battle against sin and Satan. I need to hear Sherry Peterson sing behind me when I'm distracted by the things of this world. I need that encouraging email from Rick uh, when I begin to doubt. I need that rebuke from Dale when I'm losing sight of Jesus and I want my own control over things because I can't do it on my own. And we as a church, we will not be able to do it alone. We must resist together. And we can resist together with victorious confidence because Jesus declared that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. We must resist together. And finally, church, we must resist the devil by looking to Christ. If we are going to remain firm in our faith to the end, we must never lose sight of Jesus. When we look to Jesus, we see the one who perfectly resisted Satan in the wilderness. When we look to Jesus, we see the one who never sinned. When we look to Jesus, we see him speak and the storms are stopped. Diseases are healed. Demons are cast out. The dead are raised and sins are forgiven. When we look to Jesus, we see the one who died so that we might be set free from Satan's grasp. When we look to Jesus, we see the one who was raised on the third day declaring victory over Satan, sin, and death. When we look to Jesus, we see the author and the finisher of our faith. And we look forward to the day when we will see King Jesus. And he will once and for all destroy Satan, sin, and death for all time. And establish his kingdom with his people forever 
endeavor. But until that day, church, we must fight together, looking to Jesus, who promises to keep us and to guard us until the very end. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you right now, um, maybe even thinking about the times this week, and Lord, that we have not resisted the devil well, that we have fallen into his snare. Lord, and we now confess that those thoughts, those deeds, those attitudes to you right now, knowing that you are a faithful Savior who will forgive us when we confess our sins and restore us. Lord, remind us of the spirit that we have to resist the devil. Lord, help us to hide your word in our hearts that we may not sin against you. Lord, I also want to lift up the families in this room right now who have loved ones who have been blinded by the lies of Satan. Lord, we ask that you would open their eyes just like you opened the eyes of the blind during your earthly ministry. Lord, open their eyes of their hearts so they might see the glory and worth of Christ. And Lord, we would love to be witnesses to your power in their lives today. And Lord, we do ask, God, that College Park Castleton would be a church that keeps watch over one another, that fights together against our common enemy until you return or call us home. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.